Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The Murder of Tyra Hunter. Monday, August 7th, 1995, Washington, D.C. Restoration rights for trans people in healthcare and to help us understand how the unequal access to medical services has impacted our communities, we have Tanya Walker joining the conversation. She is the co-founder of the New York Transgender Advocacy Group and she's co-chair at Equality New York. Welcome to the show. Tanya, what's your take on today's announcement by the Biden administration? I think it's a wonderful announcement. Um, transgender people uh, will now be able to access health care uh, without being uh, discriminated against uh, by hospital staff. I mean, um, if you go to the doctor and you're bleeding from a gunshot wound or a knife and, and the doctor is there or the nurse and they say, uh, because of my religion, I cannot treat you, then uh, that person, you know, trans person could die. It's Monday, August 7th, 1995, in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. It's where 24-year-old African-American transgender female Tara Hunter resided. She was on her way to work that Monday morning where she worked as a hairdresser. She was in her car, a thin Hyundai Excel, when it collided with a Ford Mustang driven by, at that time, 21-year-old cisgendered male, Gerald J. Johnson. The passenger in Tara's car was a friend of hers, cisgendered female, Tedessa Rankin. Both of them, who were blindsided by this car crash when it happened, the impact itself when this car crash happened. Left both of these individuals laying in the car, bleeding profusely. Witnesses and bystanders immediately rush over to the scene and help Tyra and Tedessa both get out of the car where they're both laying on the ground. EMTs and ambulances are rushed and get there relatively quickly. Tedessa gets support. However, when the paramedics and EMTs uncover that Tyra identifies as a Black trans woman, services are installed. This idea of where we talk about first do no harm and medical practices and healthcare, all of this would ultimately lead 
to Tara's hateful homicide that morning where she would die from her injuries around 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tara, again, 24 years old, a hairdresser, bubbly, a native of the D.C. area, had, you know, could describe as bubbly and bright and kind, and she had so much life ahead of her. And to know that she had an 87% chance of living, you know, this was even more devastating to Tara's family. She was the daughter of Margie Hunter and, you know, had siblings and family and friends who all loved on her and shared space with her. And so again, as we go through this case, welcome my audience, you know, we're going to talk about what does it mean for trans people in healthcare. And, you know, we're going to hear some amazing, you know, audio evidence from, you know, a huge advocate out in New York City by the name of Tanya Walker. And just again, how we've seen this growth and access to healthcare because this is a conversation that we need to start having when we think about, you know, personally myself identifying as a trans woman and I think about my gender journey beginning in 2006 and just not only accessing healthcare in forms of like hormone replacement therapy or even anti-retroviral therapy, right? These two parts of my intersectionalities, how did I navigate through that as a Black trans woman? But then to know, you know, we go back 26 years ago to when this hateful homicide occurred and you may be wondering to some extent like well she did get murdered so how is this a hateful homicide but we have to also look at the the context of this case though she wasn't you know targeted for being trans like the car wasn't ran into her for being trans and she wasn't that you know she wasn't killed intentionally for being trans but the reality is is that the lack of health care and the lack of response once discovered that she was trans the fact that her gender identity became into play or was in play and this also resulted in at least a 30-minute delay for medical care by the EMTs and then once they get her into the EMT and then get her transported to the emergency room the doctors there then continue to you know refuse treatment and medical care of this trans woman so again it seemed like she had a likely chance of living by not going to the hospital right because of the fact that you know it almost seemed like the bystanders would have maybe provided faster aid than the the hospital staff as well as the ENTs and so that is where the hateful homicide comes in it right because when we talk about doctors and medical providers and this is something that has been very common especially when we think of our LGBTQ community and going back from you know trauma with psychiatrists and and, you know, conversion therapy spaces. And then we go into the AIDS pandemic and epidemic, which really affected us and how we were treated, um, especially as queer people. And especially when we think of queer people of color and trans people of color. And then fast forward into 1995, where, you know, by then, you know, we have some form of, you know, trans exposure, right? But again, that is in the form of Jerry Springer and other, you know, shows at that time. So there's really, again, such a heavy still now, but definitely then in 1995 a heavy stigma of trans folks and the treatment of trans folks and certainly when we think of medical care and health care this is an example of that and because of that refusal of medical care right whether it's based on religion whether it's based on culture the reasoning does not deter from the fact that this 24 year old beautiful black trans woman who was heading to work in her Hyundai Excel was then laying on the ground with teeth 
in her mouth from the impact, right? From Gerald and he was driving, you know, a Ford Mustang at this time. And so, you know, you have this beautiful woman who is laying on the ground next to her friend who again gets supportive aid. But you also just see, and I'm going to give you a little bit of the individuals who were who were brought into this case to really talk about what happened on the scene that Monday morning. You had individuals such as Dennis Blackwell, Marcus Tascotti, Catherine Poole. All of these were um, part of that in that internal investigation. They were these fire department lieutenants of the Washington D.C. and they all were part of this investigation to really understand how the neglect and the lack of support for Tyra's gender identity and the fact that she was a human being bleeding to death um, on the side of the ground because she was in this, you know, horrific car accident. And, you know, they, they talk about what, you know, happens here. And they discuss how at the scene that Hunter was wearing pants and a blouse, that she appeared to be conscious when rescuers arrived, um, that uh, she was verbalizing this complaint of pain. Um, and then again, there was this initial because um, ambulance staff wasn't aware of Tara's gender identity, that there was treatment being provided at first. Um, and then you could hear one of the, you know, personnel's respond that everything's going to be all right, honey. Unfortunately, you know, again, please um, listen to discretion is advice. Tara, due to the trauma of her body, then began to experiment on herself. Um, and then as um, they began to cut the pants, legs, uh, pool, again, uh, one of the fire lieutenants um, on the scene goes and says that as they begin cutting up Tara's pants leg, uh, that is when they jumped back. And what was stated was, quote unquote, this is not a girl. Blank is a N-word who has male genitalia. So with that language already being, you know, explicit, inflammatory, derogatory, Tara, her intersectionalities were already counting against her. And then on top of that, if, you know, you unpack these levels of race and gender, but then they also then correlate that to Tara must be in a victim of AIDS must be in um, a survivor of AIDS, right? All of this, this is just things that they start to completely intersectionalize her with. And um, what happens is Poole, again, um, again, said that this Black technician, this was, um, this was again, all eyewitness, ear witness as well, got up, um, went over to his partner and they began laughing and telling jokes. Um, and then again, Hunter sat there, laid there for about five minutes without treatment. And this was just really, really heartbreaking um, because she did, did not receive any more treatment. She finally did get placed into the ambulance and then taken over to DC General Hospital, um, where again, where she ultimately died from blunt trauma around 9.30 that morning. 11 days after the hateful homicide, around August 18th of 1995, DC Fire Chief Otis J. Latin Sr. announced that although derogatory comment apparently was made by that technician, um, investigators could not determine who made it and no one was ever disciplined for that, you know, hateful remark. 
This again began to spark outrage for our LGBTQ organization, especially in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., which is a city known for its heavy advocacy for the trans community, LGBTQ community, as well as health rights discriminations for any of our communities, immediately bounced back and spoke up. And when Tyra was laid to rest, um, there was over 2,000 um, members at her funeral from the community, from family, and Tyra's mother, Margie Hunter, immediately, um, you know, wanted justice for her child. And the the neighborhood where Tyra grew up said that they all knew Tyra, who had began her gender journey very early on. She was born in 1970, again, to Margie Hunter, and by the age of 14, had already begun to vocalize her truth. And I can totally relate to Tyra for someone as well who began her gender journey as a teenager. And then again, to have that supportive family and friends and Tyra went on and, you know, began to live independently and work several jobs, you know, in the hair beauty industry and cosmetology, cosmetology industry as well. And so again, you know, as we continue to go through this case, it's really important for us to just take this, 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 this idea of healthcare and what does that mean? And we really want to, you know, we're going to go through this and, and I'm going to again provide audio evidence of, you know, the growth of this movement really stemming from 19. 1995, where this hateful homicide of Tara happened. And then going into just even fast forward, as you could hear in the beginning of the episode, into our current president, um, Joe Biden, who has now begun to provide, him and his administration have begun to provide health care that is going to be more accessible, more visible, and equitable for the trans community, but then also being able to unpack the trauma that trans folks, especially our trans folks of color and indigenous people, have faced. Um, Um, due to the discrimination of being trans. And so all of this is really, really, you know, heartbreaking because any of us could have been Tara, whether we identified as trans, whether we identified as queer, whether we identified as gay, any of these intersectionalities, right, whether um, could refuse us care, could refuse us health care to be treated and even being able to get the proper medical care that we need in a responsive time. Because based on... um, you know, the Tyra's autopsy, the medical examiner did determine that Tyra could have survived her injuries if she had been provided, rendered um, aid very early on. So again, when they got there, when they began providing that CPR, when they began providing that oxygen, all of these things to make sure that her vitals are staying intact. And then upon arriving and learning that she's trans and then refusing care, but still gave her a ride to the hospital. And then we have to, you know, evaluate how long did it take for them to get her to the emergency room, right to this DC General Hospital. Did it take, you know, was the ambulance sirens on? Because this was a very, very traumatic car accident. But I did also want to, you know, take a moment and go back and talk about Gerald J. Johnson, the 21-year-old cisgender man who blindsided, you know, who kind of T-boned this car and and really um, catalyzed this whole, you know, situation and he was charged he survived the this car accident and he was charged with negligent homicide you know and so um and he was placed in that jail for that and ultimately um 
was you know given a fine so there wasn't much really done for Gerald J. Johnson and since then he has went on and lived his life but around December of 1998 three years after the hateful homicide of Tara Hunter her mother Margie Hunter was awarded over two million dollars by Washington DC for you know rewards for what happened to her daughter again we need to go back and look into this idea first do no harm when a person goes into medical care medical practice whether it's an emt a pharmacist a doctor and or surgeon it is their goal to make sure that they are providing medical care to every person that needs it regardless of gender identity sexual orientation or regardless of how the person who's providing that care identifies religion and or culture that has nothing to do with Tyra's need for treatment. She had been in a severe car accident and injuries throughout her body. Her teeth had been knocked out of her mouth. She was choking on her own blood. She began to urinate on herself because her body was going through the spasm trauma of just trying to process what's going on. The homeostasis, which is the body's temperature, thermostat, is off balance. Our human body thermostat, this is my biology and history brain from college, you all, but our body's thermostat is supposed to stay at 98.6 degrees. That's why our temperatures are checked. Again, this was a summertime, so Tara's body was going into shock. She's losing blood, so her body temperature is dropping. As a result, she then begins to urinate and have all of these other, um, you know, symptoms of an imbalance homeostasis, an imbalance of severe trauma to the body. All of these things have impacted her body so severely that if she would have received that aid immediately, continuously, from the time that she was, you know, from the time of impact to the time that she was brought into DC General Hospital. Most likely, Tara will still be with us today and been able to tell her story. And what this case does for us is to get to continue to raise awareness because Tara's case was one of the first cases where we had to go back and take a look into how our black and brown trans folks have been treated in healthcare whether it's an ambulance ride or whether it's being at the hospital, you know, this refusal of care due to religious and cultural reasons or just bigotry, period, has to stop. And so, you know, when we fast forward into 2021, where we have our, you know, now president who was making sure that these these practices are no longer in play, right? That you can't refuse medical care, that trans folks can't die, as you heard from Tanya Walker, if it's from a gunshot wound or stab wound, that, okay, they're just bleeding here. Well, you know, well, my religion says I don't have to serve trans people. That is going to have to stop, right? Because that is not what we as a society and as we as people should be doing to each other, regardless of who you are, how you identify, how you express. That does not give anyone in the medical profession the right to refuse medical treatment. And especially when that medical treatment can result in your mortality. Um, and so we just have to continue to really think about that. But what I want to do now is just take a moment and really go into this idea of the growth of the case um, and really just give you a little bit more into what Tanya um, really was dealing with at this time and kind of give you an idea of what was going on just a few years ago back in 2015 and how this was 20 years after the hateful homicide of Tara Hunter but nonetheless still gives you this this sense of chronology of the fight for healthcare justice for our trans folks um I just, just using Black Lives Matter, it's like, yeah, all Black Lives Matter necessarily includes 
of black trans lives. And I think that's part of why the numbers are so, are so stark. I mean, a 2015 survey by the National Center for Trans uh, Gender Equality discovered that more than a third of respondents who saw a healthcare provider uh, had, negative ex- had a negative experience. Uh, when you look at the numbers for black and brown people, it gets multiplied. Being a, and for black trans women in particular, we see just extraordinarily bad numbers. Your story, your awful experience that's leading to this lawsuit is not an anomaly, it's not an outlier. This is something that happens every day. These are some experiences that, these are experiences that you share, but also that many people share, no? Yes, and you know, it is still happening. Uh, you know, um, doctors are not taught about uh, trans cultural sensitivity or cultural humility training uh, when they're in school. And uh, therefore, uh, when they meet us in person, uh, they get our gender pronouns wrong. They don't know how to, how to deal with a trans person. I mean, we've been here since the beginning of time. I mean, now we have an identity and a, and a politically correct name that they call us transgender people. And, uh, you know, we're visible now. And it seems like uh, since we're visible, they, they're killing more and more trans, you know, trans women. And that's exactly what Tara needed on the morning of August 7th, 1995. According again to the ear witnesses and eyewitnesses, the technician, the emergency medical technician, the EMT on the scene who provided this, you know, this treatment or refused to provide this treatment and then also made these, again, inflammatory remarks was was also Black. And so one of the things that we want to make sure, and this is an important conversation that we have to have as black trans folks and black cis folks too right because you heard um you know the amazing anchor talk about all black lives matter and that's still true to this day because even when that black technician back on august 17 august 7 1995 saw tara laying there you know bleeding out he identified with her initially because he saw a black woman in his mind and so when he realized right that that was no longer his reality in his head his whole 
attitude changed. And what we have to stop doing, and I and I encourage my Black cis audience to listen, um, especially if, if I have any of my Black cis women here, and you maybe have Black cis male partners or someone who comes from brothers. I have four brothers who are Black cis men and a Black father. So I, I speak on this, you know, our, our, our Black cis men have to continue to uplift us and uphold us, but also our Black cis community. When something happens to us, we must all come together. We know that our race is already a barrier for how we're treated in this country. And then to know that, you know, we could do it to ourselves based on gender identity. And it's not okay. We can't continue to pass on the cycle of hate by transferring that from race to now gender identity. We have to love each other. We have to support each other because no matter what our race, no matter what our gender identity and or sexual orientation or culture or religion, we are all people here in this place who are just trying to live our lives and be the best that we can be. And to know that people can refuse service, right? Especially as black people, the historical trauma of segregation, apartheid, to know that services can be refused because of your race, to know fast forward into 1995 that this trans woman, because she was black, because she was trans, was refused care after the historical trauma that we've been through, especially going back at that time, even 40 years. If you look back at 1955 with the Rosa Parks, Montgomery Boys Boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, where I'm from. So we see all of this historical fight and plight of our black people. And we have to make sure and for our brown people as well and our indigenous people, but we have to make sure that we as a black community continue to uplift and uphold each other and not refuse medical care. Because Tara, like so many of us as black trans women it could be us we could be in that car accident and if you are someone who is a black doctor a black medical personnel right and you see someone that and you know and and, and being very transparent that should almost motivate you to want to help because you see yourself racially regardless of anything else. And so that should wanna make you help. But of course we know that that's not the reality for some of us and or all of us. And so that's why I wanted to put that message out there. And that's why I really wanted to make sure that you all heard the words of Tanya Walker and just the importance of, of, of things that have happened um, throughout um, the community, especially our Black trans women, our Black trans folks, and when it comes to healthcare, you could also hear the conversation talk about employment um, and how, because right, Black trans folks and trans folks in general do not get that access to employment. Oftentimes, again, we talk about how this ties into survival sex work and how this also ties into just survival period. And unfortunately, this does also continue to increase risks and barriers and discrimination because when we can't get employment and we have to turn to survival sex work we're then putting ourselves in further harm further discrimination and especially an era like this as we can see now um, you know in 2021 we've had over 45 murders of trans two-spirited gender non-binary gender expensive folks and majority of those have been of trans women of color and especially black trans women and a lot of that does sometimes correlate with the survival sex work piece as well as just you know just bigotry and hatred period and so what we want to make sure that we continue to do and i encourage you is to be willing to learn more about be empathetic if that black technician just for Regardless, in 1995, you know, if you take out the time of it, 
just saw a person who needed support, who was bleeding, who was, whose body was seizing and reacting to physical trauma from being hit by a Ford Mustang. Tyra's case could have told such a different story. It could have told a story of success and community unity where this technician saw Tara and supported her, that she then got to DC General Hospital and was provided additional and comprehensive medical care and walked out of there with a clean bill of health. But unfortunately, that is not what happened. And it's just important for us to, again, understand why that did not happen. When I say first do no harm, this is an Hippocratic oath that medical professionals, especially doctors, are sworn into to first do no harm. Harm was done to Tara. A car hit her while she was driving to work with her friend. She died as a result of negligence because of the refusal of medical care and also the insult to injury by calling her names based on her racial identity, calling her names based on her gender identity, also then stigmatizing her with being HIV positive and or with AIDS because of those two identities, which was not Tyra's truth. But to know that in an instant, in a moment that her life changed, and then she, you know, this was very visible right where this hateful homicide happened you know this was in a very public place people saw the incident happen very early on this was on the corner of 50th and c streets and so you have this you know case where this impact happens people come over get her out of the car her and her friend tedessa rankins and tara is dead two hours later and though, again, typically we could say, well, car accidents happen and, you know, people die in car accidents. Absolutely. We know that to be true. This happens daily, hourly. But the reality is, is that Tyra had an 87% chance to survive. And all of that was taken and reduced minute by minute, second by second. And unfortunately, within two hours, that 87% went down to 0% because she was pronounced dead again by 9.30 a.m. on the morning of August 7th, 1995. That Monday morning while heading to work. And, you know, just giving you a little bit more into Tara, again, born in 1970, and she also lived with her mom, Margie, and her sister. Tara's dad left the family around 1978 and wasn't really in Tara's life. Again, she um, ultimately lived in D.C., but um, had grew up in Culpeper, Virginia. And so, you know, Margie Hunter, who was 53 at the time and was a very, very supportive parent, can recall um, when she sat down with the Washington Post, she sat down with, um, the, you know, the interviewer and she talks about you know, really sitting down with her daughter earliest 1984, you know, 11 years before Tyra's hateful homicide. And she sits down and she remember her, her daughter coming to her and saying, mom, this is me. This is who I am. And she sits down and she quotes and quotes. She says, I told Tyra that this is going to be a hard road. The public doesn't look kindly on people who identify differently. But if you can deal with that, then you should go ahead 
and be who you are. And Margie also states that she knew that she could accept it. She has received a lot of support from the community of Washington, D.C. in response to not only the racial discrimination that Tyra faced, but then also the gender identity discrimination and also the health disparity of being stigmatized with being HIV positive, which there is nothing to be ashamed of if she was. But nonetheless, because of all of those things, the hateful remarks, the hateful neglect, um, abandonment of the body, the remarks, all of this led to Margie being able to be a spokeswoman and a proponent for the LGBTQ community and the trans community, especially when it came to healthcare access. And she, along with others, um, LGBTQ organizations would continue to speak up and speak out and march and protest. And, uh, you know, we just give kudos to Margie Hunter and just being able to make sure that her daughter got some form of justice. Since Tara's hateful homicide um, on that Monday as she was heading into work, there have been two organizations that have been created in Tara's name, and one with the acronym of Tara as well. And um, both organizations that really speak out about making sure that there's, um, you know, just resources provided to the trans community throughout the East Coast, and so especially um, in the city of DC. And of course, we go and we look at this case, you know, fast forward into 2021, over 26 years later, since this hateful homicide where there should not have been any harm, where each of these individuals, to some extent, vowed first do no harm to any and all patients, regardless of how they identified and are expressed. But we continue to see the spite and the struggle um, throughout these 26 years to make sure that health care has been provided. And, you know, it's just really important for us to see, I can recall, you know, when I began my gender journey and again in 2006 and going into the medical aspect of that journey around 2011, beginning my HRT, I also became newly diagnosed with HIV at that time and so I'm also navigating my hormone care. But then also I recall just like just in general, like if I got sick or if I had, you know, needed some kind of emergency services and then going to the hospital and what did that look like for me as a black trans woman, you know, my audience and I can remember, you know, at times feeling uncomfortable, especially initially in my gender journey where I identified as preoperative. So I had not undergone gender reassignment surgery and I've been uh, postoperative gender, I've had gender reassignment surgery since 2016 and the healthcare does look different, I will admit, and the treatment of how you go through healthcare looks different, you know, um, things that are asked, um, especially in medical spaces. Um, and, and, and again, it depends on how you express and, um, and how you um, look within the trans community on the types of questions that medical personnel will ask you, the types of responses that you give, because we don't know how secure and how safe we are when we go into a medical provider space. And for someone who works in advocacy and works in healthcare, you know, extensively, these are conversations that we have daily in terms of making sure that access to healthcare is being provided, whether it's sexual health testings and or screenings, whether it's going to pick up a medical prescription with, you know, your previous name and how do you navigate through that, um, whether you are using a pronoun, say them, and making sure that your medical staff is, you know, adhering to that and being respectful of pronouns and all of those things. This has been such a fight for our community for 26 years. And again, we have to just acknowledge Tara and her existence and how this 
this incident, this this traumatic incident that left Tara and Tadessa both fighting for their lives and unfortunately Tara losing hers on that Monday morning. But we have to look at how all of that has really catalyzed this movement to making sure that trans folks, especially our trans women of color, specifically our Black trans women on how they're being treated. But I can remember going into these medical spaces and, and being asked about, you know, when's the last time I've had my cycle, right? Because they, they're they not even correlating the fact that I'm trans. And so all of these things, and then you have to peel back and like, okay, how am I gonna have this conversation with, you know, a medical staff about being trans? Am I gonna be treated differently? Am I gonna be refused medical care? Am I gonna be asked to leave? And I'm not, you know, and then also you have to think about going into the types of people that you're going to be working with too. Um, you know, we we typically have more of an association with cis women, especially cis women caregivers, been a little bit more empathetic. I was um, at a recent event where, you know, we, we spoke about uh, for World AIDS Day and where the kudos to our cis women lesbians were spot on with giving care and rendering aid, especially our nurses to our cis male um, individuals who were dealing with the early on AIDS epidemic and how our cis lesbian nurses were the only ones who would provide medical care. And so again, as we go into these medical spaces as trans folks too, a lot of times we will typically want to speak with someone who is of a cis woman experience because we feel more comfortable. And so unfortunately um, in 1995, at this at the time of this hateful homicide, Tara's technician was, he identified as a cisgendered black male. And so how does that, right? How does that look like treatment for healthcare? How does that um, determine how we're treated too if the provider is a cis male and or cis female. Also, if the cis male and or cis female has a religious and or cultural aspect to their lives, right? Can they refuse medical practice based on that? We know amendments come into play. So there's so many different, you know, pieces that goes into this this dichotomy of being able to provide medical care, but then also having the right to refuse it because of your identity of religion and our identity of culture being able to back you up, but then being able to find a balance between that, right? Because the reality is, is that we can't just let trans people die because they're trans. We can't just refuse medical care because they are trans. So that itself can no longer continue. And that is why these past 26 years, there's been such a strong, 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 um, push for, you know, making sure that healthcare is going to be accessible, visible, and equitable. And as we prepare to get ready to conclude this case, I just want to, you know, leave you all with some remarks from Tanya Walker and just, again, how we've seen this growth. Um, and then again, just a little bit of her own experience as a veteran of the military. And, and you know, we'll definitely get into some cases throughout that as well. But just really, again, taking the time to see how the healthcare system for trans folks has not been very favorable to us. And unfortunately, you know, this unfavorable opinion did lead to the hateful homicide of Tara Hunter on the morning of August 7th, 
uh, corrected or changed to really move closer toward equality than even today's announcement was. What are some things I would like to see? Uh, I would like to see um, the doctors, uh, you know, and nurses uh, get educated about us. And uh, if you don't want to care for the transgender community, don't go into the medical field. Um, we need, you know, we need more uh, uh, more social workers. We need more um, more uh, folks, more allies. We need more people involved. Uh, we need money. Uh, we need uh, everything right now. Um, and I would also like to see the Equality Act passed. The Equality Act would solve a lot of our problems when it comes to employment, when it comes to locating uh, low income and affordable housing, when it comes to uh, our, any legal issues we may have or, or credit issues. Uh, I think that the Equality Act uh, is so inclusive. If the Equality Act was passed today, uh, you would see less of black transgender women being murdered and less black trans women having to be forced into survival sex work just to survive. Uh, today, uh, the Equality Act is really the Equality Act, the Equality Act is, is, is essential. The, the work we saw done today, the political progress we saw today from the Biden administration simply restores what was already there. What you're talking about is really moving the ball forward and creating a more inclusive, a more fair, uh, more democratic space for everybody, but especially trans people. Uh, and hopefully we see that work done. Tanya, you're a part of that work. I want to thank you for your advocacy. Uh, and I want to thank you for all your time spent here with BNT and all around the world, really advocating for trans lives. If you want to learn more about Tanya's work with New York Transgender Advocacy Group, go to www.nytag.org. Come back with And there you have it. You know, this is exactly what needs to be done to my future doctors, current doctors, medical providers who are listening. Please, 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 please be willing to get trained, be willing to learn about the trans community, be willing to empathize, be willing to understand that we are people who also have medical needs and deserve to have medical access. And with that being said, we remember you, Tyra Hunter, yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever and always born 1970 and resting on since August 7th 1995 again my audience thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of a hateful homicide first do no harm my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson you can follow a hateful homicide on Instagram at a hateful homicide you can follow me at Mallory Jenna 90. That's M A L L E R Y J E N N A 90. You can also please listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. You can also use the hashtags A Hateful Homicide, True Crime Podcast, Suspenseful Saturdays, Transgender Awareness. Again, thank you all so much, and please stay tuned for next Saturday for our next episode. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye bye.